Hey everybody, welcome to Uproar. Today we get another chance to talk with our friends from G's Magazine, this time on the topic of disobedience. We really appreciate Jesus' work and we are excited to share our copies of their each new edition. So give us a call if you'd like to uh, be a part of that. And let us know if you're interested in pursuing intentional Christian community, particularly in marginalized communities and communities of color. We're working with FTE on that. So let's learn how to be disobedient. Hello and welcome everybody. My name is Carl Thomas Gladstone and it's my pleasure to welcome you to Uproar Live. Today we have the pleasure to speak with some of our favorite partners uh, in uh, Holy Mischief, our friends from G's Magazine, and they've brought a couple of conversation partners with them to talk about some uh, aspects of the most recent issue of G's Magazine on disobedience. And we can't thank you enough for all for being here. Uh, and I'll throw it to you all to make some introductions. Thank you, Carl. It's always great to be here with you. Um, for those who are listening uh, and have not heard about G's, We'll say a little bit about who we are. Cheese Magazine is a quarterly, nonprofit, ad-free print magazine at the intersection of social justice, art, and activism for people on the fringes of faith in both Canada and the U.S. Um, it's a place for contemplative cultural resistance. We hope that at best we offer a prophetic and provocative voice to the institutional church and a pastoral presence to those laboring on the front lines of social change. Uh, my name is Lydia Wiley Kellerman, and I'm the editor of G's. Um, and we're particularly focusing today on um, our spring issue, um, which was focused on disobedience, on questions around breaking the law, on the long tradition of civil disobedience, um, and aim to explore the ways that we bring our whole bodies to the work for justice and what it means to put our bodies in places of risk. Um, and we also explored how this particular historical moment demands action and risk and imagination from all of us. Um, we're also mindful that this came out just as COVID-19 was hitting and in a lot of ways our historical moment has changed pretty dramatically um, and we'll talk about that more as uh, as we go into this uh, time together. But we're really grateful uh, to have featured writings from both Bill Wiley Kellerman and we'll see and to be able to talk with them today. Thanks, Lydia. Um, so I'm Katiri. I'm the associate editor and circulation manager for G's and really excited to give a little introduction to our, our two guests this morning. Um, Bill Wiley Kellerman is a nonviolent community activist, retired pastor and author living in Detroit. And he's also the dad of two of our G's uh, staff members, Lydia and Lucy. Um, Will C. is a Detroit cultural organizer. He's a divorced father, an Orisha priest of Sango, and a grassroots organizer with a passion for bringing the liberation lessons of Detroit to global audiences. And both Will and Bill have been our mentors and comrades, community members, and thought partners for many years now. Um, and since working with G's, they've also been regular co-conspirators in this work. So thanks both for being here. And I'm wondering, uh, we'll start with Bill, if you could just tell us a little bit more about who you are and the work you're doing, and then we'll pass it over to Will. Yeah, I'm so grateful to be on with uh, Will C. Uh, you know, I have 
been involved in a number of projects uh, and movement spaces over a period of time. And I'm so glad that he's uh, kind of becoming a regular writer for uh, these. Um, yeah, my, my work these days, having retired, still focuses, uh, as it did when I was actively pastoring a congregation, still focuses on uh, nonviolence uh, and uh, community movement work uh, in Detroit. I think of myself as having a uh, place-based vocation to the city of Detroit, a kind of rooted um, calling uh, to the city. Um, and people, uh, people in, in the movement circles that I'm part of, uh, generally still call me pastoral, Pastor Bill. And, uh, so my work, even, even in those circles often includes, uh, pastoral care or ceremonial or prayer, public prayer, public theology. Uh, work specifically in stuff I'm doing these days is connected to the Poor People's Campaign, uh, Michigan Poor People's Campaign, which is part of a national movement, and uh, and the water struggle uh, in Detroit. I've I've taught theology and ministry over the years in seminary, college, and congregation level, and I'm doing less of that now. But still writing, usually my, my writing is in relation to uh, a specific moment or issue in the service of church or movement, uh, though sometimes those shorter things get gathered into the books. So that's, that continues to be my work these days. Thanks, Bill. And Will, we'd love to hear from you. Good to see everybody again. Um, it's been a little while. Um, good to be talking with you too, Bill. Um, you know, our uh, relationship and our working relationship has uh, developed over the course of years and is evolving, you know. Um, and now this new wrinkle of G's Magazine, you know, has come in in the last couple of years. I enjoy writing for G's Magazine and really resonate with the uh, the mission of what you may call contemplation or others may call spirituality and social justice. Um, I'm also a hip hop artist under the name Will C, uh, W-I-L-L-S-E-E. And even in that, uh, working under the uh, notice of entertainment justice, uh, looking at making uh, pop culture that is not uh, preachy per se, but that gives the energy that we need in this day, the energy, the truth telling. So I try to do that lyrically in addition to my writing. Um, I've been a long time environmental justice act organizer um, in Detroit and also uh, connecting Detroit with uh, movements around the uh, country and around the world. And uh, I too have quote unquote retired from that particular phase. Um, but I realize now that my, uh, my organizing and my activism has shifted. Um, definitely involved in new African independence projects and uh, projects looking at uh, linking, linking and strengthening the African diaspora 
um, towards uh, communalism and socialism. Um, definitely, I have had a chronic kidney condition for many, many years, most of my life, and have uh, gotten more and more active in the disability justice movement, um, particularly in supporting people with disabilities and chronic illnesses and caregivers. Um, shout out to Detroit Disability Power. Um, and that actually comes out of environmental justice, looking at how these environmental conditions are uh, creating these health conditions in our communities. Or as uh, Baba Baxter says, this society is disabling us. And uh, this goal of supporting people, uh, we'll call it pastoral care. Uh, I think I call it right now spiritual development. I'm a, a newly initiated Orisha priest of Shango, the, uh, the divinity of uh, thunder, the divinity of uh, the drum. Um, so I'm very excited in my work uh, revitalizing traditional African culture, traditional African religion within the diaspora. And lastly, I'm working on this project, which I'll probably talk a little bit more later. So happy that uh, Katiri is going to be a presenter in it, among others uh, that we know and love, called Wilds Beyond Climate Justice, which kind of like many things that we're talking about, look at how can we go beyond mainstream analysis of what the problem is and what the solutions are and uh, maybe take a pause and come to a new conclusion, even a new conclusion on what the of what the problems are. And that will give us a space, which I think is what we're gonna talk about today. That'll give us a space to make new actions and uh, to make new actions that maybe we never could have even foreseen. And so, uh, I guess I'm still staying busy in my retirement too, Bill. <laughs> uh, hey everybody, Carl here, just in the middle to tell you a little bit about the project that we are pursuing along with support from the Forum for Theological Exploration. Motor City Villages is a chance for us to recruit, train, and place young students of color for the creation of intentional Christian communities for the purposes of vocational and spiritual discernment. We're really looking forward to this fall where we'll get our first chance to see some of this in action all the way through next June of 2021. So if you have a student at any campus in Metro Detroit, we'd love to get to know them and to tell them a little bit about how we could support them in calling a group of students together, creating a rule of life, pursuing justice and equity work, and doing the discernment around all of that experience that helps them claim God's call in their life. Be in touch with us at MotorCityWesley.org if there's a student in your neck of the woods that we should meet and call them into this mission field of Motor City Villages. We're at MotorCityWesley.org. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks to you both. So grateful for who both of you are and all the work that you're doing. Um, I want to spend a little bit of time having each of you reflect very briefly about what what it is that you wrote about in this issue. Um, and I'll say for folks who are listening, um, you can actually find both of their writings on our website. 
Um, and I'll, I'll just say that Jeez is very committed to being a print magazine. Um, we think that there's something that is different when you hold something in your hands versus when you read it on the screen. Um, and we're constantly looking for ways to tangibly engage with the word and with art and with one another. Um, so we only pick a few, uh, a few articles each issue to highlight on our website, but we happen to have both of these uh, powerful pieces there. So you're welcome to, um, to find them there if you don't have a copy of the magazine, um, or of course you can get a copy of the magazine. But if each of you would just say briefly what you are, uh, what you both wrote about for this issue. Go ahead, Will. All right, for sure. Um, the title of my piece was uh, Breaking America's Law. And it begins with a, a story told by Detroit historian uh, who also is a, a, a virus survivor. And he wrote a, a dope, this is a tangent, he wrote a dope and powerful first person experience of his uh, symptoms and his recovery, which was very helpful and very inspirational. It was, uh, I think he wrote it when he was, it was about 18 days in and he kind of was almost on the upswing. But his name is Baba Jamon Jordan and uh, he's a Detroit gym. He does tours and of Detroit historical tours and greatly contributes to our historical understanding. And he talks about how the Detroit Police Department was found. And it was actually founded when two Africans were running away from slavery and they were caught and placed in this jail. And the Detroit African black community came out in such numbers that they were able to uh, free them and uh, sprint them away to Windsor across the river. And the uh, powers that be, the powers of slavery, the powers of whiteness and business and all these things that intersect said that they will never be overwhelmed and never be outnumbered again. And from that, they instituted curfews. And from that, they instituted the patrol force that would become the Detroit Police Department. And I, I think about uh, the talk, quote unquote, if you've heard of that phrase that black families have with their children. And this talk is about police. And many times it seems that this talk is filled with fear. And I have a particular twist on this talk, which I, I say that we are in an ongoing war. It is unproductive to fear the enemy, but also unwise to force unnecessary confrontation or to prematurely broadcast one's intentions. And both of my parents were born in the South. Both of them are of an age in which they were at least in adolescence, if not adulthood, before this thing called segregation ended. So they, they had a number of years and by the time even the idea of equality or the idea of whatever, you know, they had lived whatever, 16, 18, 20, 22, however many years, you know, 25. Uh, they had, so they had lived some years under apartheid, under Jim Crow and growing up, uh, I was always aware, and it, it was a real intellectual challenge for me during adolescence, that there was a war against my people. And what is my relationship to that war? And in this work that we're doing uh, with Wild to Beyond Climate Justice, 
we've been discussing and talking about this phrase that means a lot to me, which is a phrase of spiritual warrior. And I really identify with that phrase. I really identify with that mission. In Orisha culture, uh, a lot of the Orisha, almost all of the Orishas are warriors. And so it, uh, I'm, now I'm wrestling and defining for myself what being a spiritual warrior is. Uh, but part of being a spiritual warrior is a hesitancy to put yourself in the enemy's hands. And so this, uh, a lot of what I talk about in the piece is my relationship to going to jail, my relationship to being captured is an objective that this society has and has successfully done for millions of my people. And so it's uh, uh, this notion of doing it voluntarily. Uh, if I'm going to go to jail, they're going to have to catch me and it's going to be for something that I did that I uh, <laughs> did not want to be caught for. <laughs> and that's my position right now, but I'm always uh, open to hear others' stories, hear others' paths, um, and hear how other spiritual warriors are relating to this moment. So thank you for letting me share a little bit about my piece on breaking America's law. Yeah, um, my article uh, actually was titled by the editorial staff, uh, Eucharist at gunpoint, uh, and it concerns uh, what I call a liturgical direct action that I was part of in the early 1980s, uh, where a group of us uh, did the Easter Vigil Liturgy, uh, which is a, a specific uh, service of worship in relation to Easter, uh, walking on to the SAC base at uh, Wordsmith Air Force Base, walking down the runway and uh, over a period, actually over a period of hours, getting all the way to the uh, high security area, the uh, area that's uh, designated for, uh, 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 what do they call it? I was gonna say, uh, deadly force is, is authorized. And uh, we completed the, the Eucharist there at, at gunpoint. Um, the, the high security area was where B-52s, which could be argued had been a deterrent weapon, uh, mutual assured destruction weapon, uh, were being armed with cruise missiles and basically at that point being turned into uh, first strike uh, nuclear weapons. And our action was part of a, uh, many such actions that were going on around the country, around this country and around the world for that uh, matter. Uh, the the anti-military, anti-nuclear movement was very, very uh, lively at that point. And there were, as I say, many such actions. It, it was important to me, uh, partly because of where we'd done actions connected with the Christian liturgical year around uh, Good Friday or Lent, uh, Advent, penitential uh, seasons or the Feast of the Holy Innocents, uh, the, the darker, uh, bloodier days of the church year. This was the first time for me and actually I think for many people where we, we kind of claimed the uh, 
high holy days of of Easter and the and the politics of that, the freedom from uh, the power of death and bondage to death and this the, the logic of necessity that goes with these uh, weapons. Uh, so it was important to me in in that aspect. What I, what I write about is uh, is actually the the process of discerning the action, uh, which took uh, over the course of a year, uh, a whole series of retreats and Bible study and uh, life sharing, uh, uh, confessing uh, confessing our fears. Uh, for example, um, often it's not in such process process when. When you go around and confess the things you're afraid of, uh, often it's not they're the very things you're actually being called to. And kept inside, fears can rule you and hold you back. Uh, shared within the context of community, they can be not only freed, freeing and freed from, but actually in the service of the Holy Spirit instead of in the service of the powers. So the the article is really about that discernment process. It's not altogether pretty because there there I can I make a confession of a point where my my own ego got involved and I think I sadly blocked uh, the process. Uh, but again, I think that ends up being an important lesson uh, for myself and and perhaps for. Uh, uh, others as well. I, th I think of it in relation to, to Will's article uh, and uh, you know when when all these trucks came rushing out and and military personnel jumped out and pointed assault weapons uh, at us, they held fire and waited. Uh, I think if we'd have been uh, a circle of uh, black folks, African-Americans, uh, the weapons might have gone off. And we, we see that all the time. So that's a, you know, reading, reading Will's article and the, and the questions he's raising there about basically about the illegality of black bodies uh, sort of puts our action, not, a, not so much in the question in the, perspective of white privilege, though that might well be said, uh, but in a, uh, yeah, it puts it in a, in a, in a contrast. Um, so I appreciate putting these two things together. Thank you both. Yeah, we do too. Um, and we're, we're so aware that it felt ironic um, sending out this issue, which we'd already put together, uh, put to print, before coronavirus was even on our radar. Um, and then all of a sudden in the midst of quarantine, folks are re receiving this issue um, on civil disobedience. And it's just all of us talking about joining together and putting our bodies in the line. Um, and now we're being told not to gather and sheltering in place. So we're wondering how each of you think about resistance and movement um, in this particular moment of quarantine and sheltering. Mm. You want me to start off? Yeah, go ahead. All right. Um, I, 
when I th when I see the word ironic or when I hear the word ironic, I just have to mention the irony that there are uh, people out there that are using images of civil rights and language of civil rights uh, to advance what I would call their right to be served, you know, their right to get their nails done, their right to uh, be waited upon, their right to uh, buy all the things that make them feel good. Um, and in many ways, putting themselves and other people at risk um, but the if you look at the language they're using, I've seen them use anti-abortion, I've seen them use pro-choice language, I've seen them use civil rights language. Mm -hmm. So it's very fascinating that our entire culture, our entire country, this United States empire is very aware of the movement and even is aspiring, even if they're doing it in, uh, I don't know if we can cuss, so I'll, I'll, even if they were doing it in messed up ways, they're, they're looking to this thing called movement somehow to, to guide them. So I think that that's, uh, that's pretty ironic, um, as crazy as that may be. And uh, I like what you said, Bill, about freedom from the power of death. And I'm uh, I'm gonna sit with that. Um, I'm gonna sit with that. But I like that in Orisha culture we talk about uh, active relationships with our ancestors, um, and the ancestors are uh, beings. We have many more relationships than just with the people that you see walking around in the uh, three dimensions. Death is uh, death is just a transition, you know, and. Uh, Marcus Garvey, when he passed, he said, look for me in the whirlwind. And I, I want to write an article about climate justice and the ancestors and uh, the weather, these storms as being like the unresolved fury of our ancestors, many millions of which died in these oceans, you know what I'm saying, over hundreds of years. Um, and so I think that as people are are struggling over these questions of life and death, I hope that our activism expands, you know what I'm saying, to, you know, spiritual war. I hope the spiritual warriors step forward. And I mean, you've seen that a lot, like with the uh, Native American led, you know, like the Keystone XL and the different pipelines that come out of the indigenous movements. Um, many people only see, you know, oh, this is about oil. You know, but there's a lot when you get into it or near it, you, there's a lot of spiritual components. And it's really about, uh, you know, holding space to develop a relationship with the earth. Um, and so I think that, um, you know, many people are passing. So I hope that a new relationship with ancestry, a new relationship of what this movement is can come about. And then lastly, you know, I got to say this through my work with disability justice, I just find it, it's a powerful moment in which the entire nation is afraid of getting sick. Hmm. And I, you know, I'm in disability justice circles and some people are literally saying, I'm, I'm prepared for this. You know, some people are saying, I've been dealing with, you know, I've been sheltering in place for the last six months already because of certain uh, immunosuppressant conditions. Some people are saying, 
Um, you know, I already didn't leave my house and leaving my house already was a calculation and a risk. And I think that um, the disability justice movement has a lot to offer these times mm -hmm. um, in terms of how we navigate. And the uh, we are not people with disabilities and chronic illnesses are not only people to receive care and only people to be saved and whatnot. Um, but I think that this is an important moment to hear about this leadership um, in disability justice and healing justice. And um, I think it's going to have a lot to offer because I think that I was reading this quote by Sins Invalid, uh, which is a, a disability justice creative coalition on the West Coast. And they said that you know, disability is the largest uh, minority in the world. And if you think of, you know, elders, as people get older, as you think of all the various chronic conditions, especially those that are exacerbated by this society, you know, uh, we all deal with it, even though we, it hasn't necessarily been politicized. And now more than ever, we're all dealing with it. Um, and we just have to politicize we just have to understand it and put it in the right context and it'll be a powerful impetus for the movement. All of that is so helpful. Yeah, thank you. Um, I guess I, uh, one of, I think of several things, uh, you know, all practical and concrete in this recent period. Uh, one is that I think of uh, nonviolent direct action as always being uh, a politics of the body. Um, it's uh, where you put your body, whether that's a forbidden space, whether you use your body to block something um, violent or unjust, uh, whether you use your hands to uh, turn on uh, water uh, to someone who's been shut off. Um, it's, it's always, uh, it's, a, it's a body politics, um, uh, where you stand, where you sit, where you walk, where you refuse uh, to go in, about, in spaces. Um, so it, and, and yeah, so it has been, uh, interesting and difficult to think about how do you do direct action in a time when uh, we're not only uh, sheltering uh, in, in place, but where so much of movement work and conversation has gone digital, uh, such as this conversation here, where we're each in different places. Uh, for example, the Poor People's Campaign uh, nationally, we're, we're building for uh, the, the largest digital march on Washington uh, ever in, uh, on June the 20th. And, uh, and that's, it's serious organizing. Uh, uh, and it's being done in digital spaces. Uh, it's... Um, it's going to be, yeah, I think it'll be a very interesting event. Uh, there's cultural work being done, you know, 
digitally as well, uh, and it'll it'll move toward. Uh, uh, but the big priority for this next period is uh, voter registration, resisting voter suppression, getting the vote out. Um, presuming there's uh, there's going to be an election. Um, so yeah, it's changed. Uh, the campaign that started with direct action, uh, 40 days of uh, weekly uh, civil disobedience actions, uh, has has gone into this digital uh, digital phase. Um, hmm. Then there's a there's the question of obedience and disobedience. Uh, uh, I think your will is right the way. Uh, the civil rights uh, language and legacy has been employed by folks uh, carrying assault weapons into uh, uh, into into the Capitol, uh, or doing, as you say, haircut actions uh, at the at the Capitol uh, in in violation of what our regulations for the safety of other people um, and uh, having having contempt for that um, and I would I, I've been thinking how much uh, white supremacy um, which is exemplified very so openly and directly in those actions and of which uh, to which white people are all subject and all, all in bondage to the extent to which it uh, it's a spiritual wound that makes you um, incapable of empathy or uh, you know feeling other people's pain uh, you know a history of um, uh, the taking of the land, indigenous genocide, chattel slavery. It means that uh, white folks know at some level that death is underneath everything. So denial is the, is the order of the day. And that becomes a, turns into a spiritual incapacity that we're, mm. we're being not only evinced by the president, but uh, by by these actions, and then the other thing we're making a trying to make a plan to do a vigil on the Capitol steps uh, and um, at safe distance. It would have a memorial dimension to it, and a and a, and a rebuke of the white supremacy things that have happened there, uh, and. And there's a concern that this is, you know, we're supposed to stay at home and this is illegal. We would be breaking the law. And in fact, we want to be in this moment uh, demonstrating a, a fidelity to honoring what our Dr. King in the, in the letter to the Birmingham jail was called upon to make a distinction between just and unjust laws. And this is the time for discerning that, right? Um, and um, so obedience, oddly, becomes uh, part of the 
Um, we are seeing all kinds of creative things that people are doing uh, involving car automobiles, for example, uh, Cosecha and rapid response, rapid response. Uh, did a pretty remarkable automobile caravan action down at the Monroe uh, Detention Center, uh, calling on people to be released in the in their, uh, uh, um, uh, I think there are creative things that can be done. That uh, it's that it raises all sorts of. Ironic, as we say. Uh, okay. Well, thank you both for all of that. Um, I think yeah. there are things that we're wrestling with at G's and things that I feel are sort of deeply wrestling in myself. Um, I think a lot about this digital technology conversation, um, especially for G's where we're so committed to trying to keep sort of embodied work where we're not looking to create more spaces for people to be in front of a computer screen, but to be in community or be outside or um, to have things feel tangible. Um, and yet also seeing right now the real tools that technology offers um, and the need for connection, but then also not wanting that to just be the automatic answer um, that that sort of all we do and all of our work is shifted onto screens. Um, and I think the other sort of piece that I'm wrestling with, and I think you've both addressed it some, but maybe there's sort of more to say. Um, I feel I feel this tension and this wrestling between, on one hand, it feels like, I think a lot about Grace Boggs's words of these are the times to grow our souls, you know, like while we're sheltered in our homes, who are we going to be on the other side of this? How do we make sure that when we come out of our doors, we're not returning to normal, that we're not letting capitalism come back, um, that we're taking this time to love our kids and grow food. And, you know, for those of us who are, who are at home, how do we, how do we think about that space? And then on the other hand, it feels like the coronavirus is really uncovering so much that so much is being exposed um, and we can't be out in the streets in a massive way. Um, there are people in Detroit who still don't have running water. There are people who can't pay rent. There's workers, labor issues, um, and there's all these laws that are being passed so quietly um, in the sort of guise of a pandemic. Um, and so what does it mean that we can't um, be massively together? And so is there, is there a way, is this a moment to think new and creatively about what activism looks like, what saying no means that is embodied and communal? Um, I don't know, you've both addressed that, but if there's anything coming coming up, I'd love to think more on that. I love um, the question, how you frame this entire conversation around risk. 
And I think I have to just say, you know, on this day, on uh, May 21st, we're entering a new phase. And what I mean by that is, you know, yes, there is this stay at home, shelter in place aspect, but all over the country, all sorts of businesses are reopening, all sorts of uh, cafeterias and restaurants and things. And so we're entering a new phase and we've entered into a new phase. And I've been talking with friends and this is the type of situation which just as we do politically, everybody has to ascertain their own risk. You know, I'm talking to folks and folks is like, yo, I ain't going to none of these restaurants. I ain't going to none of these places. I don't care if the governor says it's open. You know what I'm saying? Like each person, each family, each unit has to ascertain what those risks are and how they want to place their bodies, which is the exact same thing you're talking about. And is, you know what I'm saying, sitting in this restaurant and doing this, is that a risk or is that not a risk? You know, just because now the governor or whoever says you can do it, does that mean you should do it? You know, and so I think everybody has to ascertain risk um, in this day and age. And it's good for us to communally talk about that. You know, it's good for us to share articles and share information and share, you know, even what we're doing and how we make decisions, you know. I ain't, you know what I'm saying? Like, I, I'm like, yo, I ain't, I ain't changing my behavior to at least three weeks. You know what I'm saying? After these orders come out, because I just want to see how it unfolds, you know, for a period of time. Whereas some people, the first day everything opens, they're walking around, taking their mask off, uh, having a cocktail party, you know? And so I think it's good for us politically, but just in this new phase where more, where, it's not all or nothing anymore, you know? And the other thing I would say, uh, I, you, you, you're emphasizing communalism and things like that, but from a perspective of war, just a little bit that I've studied about uh, guerrilla warfare, there's a lot that can be done with small groups of people. And part, guerrilla warfare has a different objective, but it's still breaking the law in a certain way, but its objective is to diminish the the enemy's capacity is the it's the it's directive is not to bring people together to feel together its directive is not to be a symbolic show very often it's done quietly secretly but it's you know if we could diminish you know shut down a bank's computer system or you know talk about what capacities could we diminish then there could be small groups of people that could continue to take action and those action could diminish the capacities of these systems that oppress you know like what if we had hackers and and they could just restore everybody's balance to zero or restore thousands of people's balance to zero you know and we don't have to take credit for it we don't have to say we did it you know which is a different framework than we're going to be out in the street and everybody's going to see us and we're going to get our politics from feeling together but it's like yo what you know what what there's a lot that can be done and you don't got to tell nobody you're doing it, you know? Um, one of the phrases, real G's move in silence, you know? And so I think that there's new ways in which our action can cause different effects in the world. And, you know, you might not even tell your family members that you're doing it, you know what I'm saying? Um, and it, but it can help people. You see that with people turning people's water back on, you know what I'm saying? Like people 
passing out the water keys, turning the water back on. You know what I'm saying? Like, we don't got to tell everybody, hey, I did this house and I did that house and I did this, you know? And so there's a lot of ways in which we can work. And just related to that also, I have to give a shout out because we haven't talked about it explicitly to mutual aid. I think that mutual aid is the shit. I think, uh, I think we should really uplift mutual. When you talk about like, what do we do when we leave and what do we like? I think we should take these mutual aid infrastructures and bring that into our day-to-day life, bring that into our society, bring the phone trees, bring the checking in on people, bring in the taking elders, bringing them their medicine and stuff like that. Like the mutual aid that's been developing, we should view that like we're not, we're not going to stop just because they told us that the vaccine is ready. You know what I'm saying? Like, I think we should view that as a cornerstone of what we're going to take and move forward. And we should even see that as the infrastructure that we need to move forward. So good. So right. Um, uh, growing our own souls, uh, maybe starting there, uh, uh, in the almost immediately in the days of my my own uh, quarantining, uh, I found myself really taking on a a, a discipline and a commitment to be. Uh, interceding, lighting a candle, burning sage, and interceding every day. I just felt like that was my work for people who I knew uh, had cases or uh, were hospitalized, uh, for people by name, but also more more broadly. Um, and, you know, many people have made the, the comparison of shelter in place to Sabbath in the, in the biblical tradition of sitting still, having a limit on how far you walk uh, or doing no work uh, and the, sort of the spirituality of that. Within the biblical tradition, there's even a, a bigger picture of that, that every seventh year, uh, the sabbatical year, uh, debts were forgiven, slaves were freed, the land lay flat fallow uh, so that the poor and the creatures could eat. I mean, it's and the Jubilee year, even cases, uh, elements beyond that. So we've sort of been led into uh, an enforced uh, Jubilee Sabbath from which we have each of that, that institutionalized cycle biblically offered uh, the community a lesson uh, to be remembered, uh, that to come back to, uh, to break up the consolidation of, of land and capital. And uh, so that to me seems like the huge opportunity of, uh, uh, of this time. Um, It's also apocalyptic, that's uh, 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 that word, again, biblically means to pull the veil back to uh, a deeper reality is exposed. And those are the very things that, uh, the kind of things that 
uh, Lydia was naming at the at the beginning, the structures of race and poverty, where um, uh, both the number of cases and the number of uh, deaths from the virus are wide widely disproportionate in black and brown communities. And that's a, that's a consequence of the way society, the city, policy, institutions are, are structured and put together. That's being exposed by, uh, by this. Um, and the notion of not going back to normal uh, is, is a, is a high priority, and that that would be one example, um, one that I'm thinking immediately, practically about and working on is the is the water issue. Um, mm. uh, back in February, uh, the 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 water struggle in Detroit had been pushing the governor to call it in to shut shut off water shutoffs to put pressure on the. Uh, on the mayor and the city of Detroit and other cities around the, the state to use her emergency powers to do that. And she determined in February that uh, it didn't, <clears throat> the, the health crisis didn't rise to the level of an emergency. But then the virus happened and she did employ her emergency powers to, to stop the shutoffs and in fact to Force the city to turn on some water. They, the, not everybody. I mean, they they've been continued to be uh, deceptive uh, about how many have been turned on and uh, how many how many people remain without water. But so now we're coming. She's next week. She's going to be uh, making an, uh, an announcement, probably to continue the ban on on shutoffs for. Uh, the next period, and we're we're working to say this is the point to to put an end to shutoffs altogether to to make that uh, <clears throat> to make water affordability. You know, this is an we've seen what happens. We've seen how it creates a public health crisis for the city of Detroit. How it's a factor in uh, being a hotspot and disproportionate uh, uh, deaths. Uh, this needs to be a a permanent part of how we come out of this. So, uh, what's what's gotten exposed sets uh, an agenda. Uh, I couldn't agree more about uh, mutual aid and and the way that's been uh, just generated in all kinds of creative uh, ways. And I don't think that's going to going to disappear. Uh, I think. We're, we're learning and deepening uh, that vision of, of community at the, at the base that's going to continue. And, and, the, and Will, your thoughts about, about risk, uh, I so appreciate. And, you know, it's both a matter of risking, what are we risking or not risking about ourselves? And, you know, I've got, I'm one of those who has, <laughs> to be honest, six of the seven uh, vulnerabilities to the uh, to the virus, so I've I've tried to be careful and gotten a lot of encouragement from my family to be uh, very careful. But the flip side of that is, what risks are we putting other people at? You know, that's the uh, 
so you you shelter in place or you you're you're you wear a mask not be, the mask doesn't protect you it protects other people right so how we how we minimize the risks that we create for others is part of how our thinking is being changed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I uh, was on Instagram and saw uh, this post this morning uh, from the marvelous Mrs. Basil, and it says... Uh, you know why America can't flatten the curve? Because for too long, the quote majority have never had to listen to the word no. <laughs> They've never had to operate within unsaid social rules. So the idea of restricting themselves to save themselves sounds like oppression. And I, uh, I think, I think we got to build up our stamina as individuals, as families, and as communities. I think that this this thing is going to unfold. I like what you said about the jubilee, like a cycle. This thing may take place in waves. Like I think we need to. Like people are people are getting tired. You know, like I'm tired of being in my house. I want to go out. I want to have fun. I want to blah 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 blah. You know, I want to get back to normal. I want to do this. I want to do that. Like I think there's a certain stamina that we're going to have to build. Because I think, you know, things are, op- like, this is going to unfold. This is going to unfold over a period of time. I don't know how long that period of time is going to be. Um, but I think that we need to build up our stamina to, you know, do the things that you're saying over time, you know, and even be prepared. Like, okay, like you talk about stepping out, we might step out and have to step back in, you know. And one of the things um, we haven't talked about yet, but that we'd love to, to bring in for the last few minutes of the conversation is just um, what is it going to mean as we're talking about uh, resistance and risk taking um, to also be in the midst of a time of mass mourning and uh, death. So as you two know, but maybe some of the listeners don't, we um, planned our fall issue on G's months ago. Um, to be on death and dying and decided to go through with it. Um, so we're receiving pieces for that now. Um, but we had no idea that we would be, we would be putting this issue out in the context of so much death and grief. Um, so I just wonder how you two are thinking about uh, communal mourning right now or mourning in general and um, how that might relate or not relate to resistance work um, or how the, how we can start doing that more in, um, these ways that we, we have to stay isolated um, even when we want to be in community. Glenn, <clears throat> Will and I have actually had some conversation about this uh, uh, a few weeks ago, uh, just in a, in a very uh, kind of preliminary way. And, and there's so many dimensions to it. Uh, one that there's, uh, and it is a pastoral care issue. There's so much grief that's happening and people are isolated in that with uh, uh, often uh, without, without support. Um, I think of there being a distinction between grief and mourning, that grief is the, uh, uh, is the 
is the suffering that's rooted in love and loss uh, and the emotional uh, dimension of that. Mourning is the ritualizing, the processing, the ceremonializing, the community, communal embodying of, of grief uh, uh, in a way that uh, uh, not only pastors it, if you will, uh, for uh, the individual or the family who's, who's lost, um, but also for the community. And what we were just beginning to have a beginning conversation about was also the way in which that mourning process uh, uh, could have a political dimension, what, at least what I would call political dimension, socially transforming uh, uh, power. And there are all kinds of uh, examples, Latin America, the mothers of the disappeared who uh, did their mourning in the public square in a way that called attention and exposed the uh, uh, paramilitary uh, government, say, in uh, any number of places, uh, or the uh, uh, the lynching memorial in uh, Montgomery, where deaths that have been denied and covered over and forgotten are brought uh, in, in, in a painful and excruciating way into the light, but also in, in a way that the, the energy of uh, that mourning process can be transforming toward justice. Um, years ago, I was in a circle with uh, Nelson Johnson from North Carolina and um, we were having a similar conversation at that time. He had actually just been to the grave sites of his uh, grandparents. And uh, so the, the history of slavery and his connection to it in the South was sort of right there. And he said, you know, what if, what if the history of suffering is a giant store uh, which needs to be released, I'm paraphrasing him, I wish I could quote him precisely, but which needs to be released and could be in the service of social justice and transformation. What if that, what if that history uh, processed with uh, uh, that energy could be put in the service of, uh, of justice? And I think that's why we're, we're in the midst of how do we do that in this moment, separated? How do we pastor and care for and communally do funerals where you can't gather? I was part of one the other day uh, uh, by Zoom, uh, but also thinking to the point uh, where we can, hopefully we can be gathering in spaces, how we gather some of this, uh, this history up and uh, uh, use what it exposes uh, as a as a source of genuine personal and political transformation. Very thought provoking. Very thought provoking. I was um, 
I was 16 when my mother passed and um, I uh, still finished high school on time and uh, was uh, at that time the lesson that I learned about uh, death is that the train is not going to stop. You have to get back on it. I realize now, 20 something years later, that a lot of that attitude comes out of one capitalism and the machine, which keeps going and the pieces can get ground up in the machine, but the machine will still go, but also slavery and the intergenerational trauma of, of slavery in which you had to get up and you had to train your body and literally the community has to form to support people to be able to get up whatever beatings you took, whatever happened, you had to train your body and train your community to get up the next day to work for the economy. And I think that, uh, to take the time for mourning and to say that, uh, we need a society that is not a machine. We need a society that does not ground you up if you're in mourning and we need a different type of society. I think that that's, we have an opportunity to do that. You know, uh, Maladoma Somme talks about in his culture with the Dagara people, their funeral days are seven days, you know, and people come from all the villages and they know that the family of the bereaved is not going to do anything for those seven days, you know, and they have this whole complicated system of support, you know, whereas many times people have jobs and they get a day off, you know what I'm saying? But if it's your uncle and not your father or not your mother, you might not get any, you know, that you have to like fill out a form and whatever, you know, if it's your cousin, they're like, no, you only get time off if it's your mother or your kid, you know what I'm saying? And, and that's one day, you know? And so I think that, um, to vision that we can create a different type of society that has different types of supports, um, I mean, you see it now with all the people that are losing their jobs and stuff, you know what I'm saying? Like, we need a society that has supports, you know what I'm saying? And the mutual aid is a part of that. Um, I think that encouraging, you know, in Detroit, there was a movement called New Work, New Culture, you know, which was like, how do we decrease our dependent on jobs and look to work in a different way? Um, and so I think, yeah, we need we need a society that's going to allow for mourning and allow for grief, you know? And I appreciate all the questions and I appreciate all the conversation, you know, so we can wrestle our mind on what to do. Thank you. Um, we wanna come to a, to a pretty quick end here, but also just wanna leave space for if either of you have questions for one another um, to sort of briefly end on. I have a question for you, Bill. Yeah. I would I would love to hear a little bit. I've heard uh, a little bit of the strategy of uh, civil disobedience as relates to the civil rights movement, but I would love to hear, and I, I think it may be helpful to hear a little bit of your thoughts of in the 21st century, um, the strategy, whether it's the objectives or the uh, 
yeah, the objectives or the outcomes of the civil disobedience that is attractive to you and the civil disobedience that you've been uh, evolving and, lead, and leading for, uh, for this many years. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, um, well, two, several things. Uh, one, in the, in the civil rights movement, people put their bodies in spaces where it was forbidden and, uh, uh, and packed the jails, you know, Birmingham, they, they had, they had no place to, to put people anymore. The, the, uh, high school students, you know, were coming out in mass and, and they basically shut the place down. Um, we haven't been, in my recent memory, in my memory uh, of activism and in any position to do that kind of, of work. But I've, I've continued to feel like um, putting a responsibility on the system to deal with your body mm. uh, in jail is, has been part of what direct action uh, means. And I don't gainsay uh, a huge distinction between uh, black and white bodies in this in this process and my own. Um, um, I did I did uh, as part of the the poor people's campaign. Uh, we did all these actions. Many people, hundred and over hundred people, were involved in arrests and. Um, and those weren't entirely orchestrated, but uh, the, often the court scene, you know, people came just prepared to pay several hundred dollars and, and, and walk away. And, um, and there's a value, there's still a value in that strategically, I think. Um, uh, on one occasion, partly because of the way the judge was treating people, um, uh, contemptuously, not even allowing them to make uh, statements about use the courtroom as a place to make statements and go on record. Uh, and he was sentencing people to 12 days or $300. And in that instance, I just had a gut reaction. I said, I'll do the time, you know, <laughs> give me, give me the time. And, uh, and, and a couple of us did, did do the jail time and and again I would say the fact that we were we were in even for that brief period of time uh, one you get to you get to taste what so many people do all the time and as a matter of course you get just a just a glimpse and a taste of that personally in terms of your own transformation but also I think it, it generated stuff on the on the outside for their uh, there weren't many people from that campaign who who did any time in jail, and it was uh, uh, I think it represented uh, and opened opportunities outside uh, for raising the question of prisoners in in general. Mm. Um, and there were vigils not not for us as such, but for prisoners. It, it raised that whole dimension of the of the mm -hmm. campaign as mass incarceration. 
and put it on the put it on the table simply because we were pulling people into that into that space uh, in a in a in a concrete momentary way. Um, so I continue to I mean I don't think there's any this is the way to do it uh, way at all, uh, but feel like. Um, it can have a strategic value and and place in in the movement of uh, for direct action rather than just you know paying your way out. Mm. Mm. Thank you. There's also there's levels of privilege on both of those. <laughs> I mean, I was in with I was in with lots of folks who were who were there because they couldn't pay bail. They didn't have the money. Well, I'm deeply, deeply grateful for both of you um, and for all that you have taught to me and to all of all of the readers at G's and for the work that we do. And I look forward to lots more conspiracies and holy mischief together. Um, and for those who are listening, I think that this issue in general is just really powerful and offers a lot of really important questions for all of us to be thinking about right now. Um, and you can find that on Jesus' website, and we'd love to send you the back copy. And also, with a month, we'll be sending out our, our summer issue, which is focused on trees. Uh, and it feels like really healing medicine for all of us in this particular moment. So we would love to have you join us as subscribers uh, before that comes out this summer. So again, deep gratitude to, to all of you and to Carl for hosting us here today too. Thanks friends. Um, we want to say a word of uh, encouragement. Uh, if you are interested in kind of living out some of the things you're reading in G's magazine, uh, Motor City Wesley is pursuing a project called Motor City Villages. The idea is to get people uh, connected with folks in their neighborhood, particularly neighborhoods of color, uh, to be living out radical discipleship and uh, world transforming action. Uh, so we've we've got a few uh, issues of magazines every time uh, to get to you if you're looking for that. And so just be in touch with us over at MotorCityWesley.org. And as always, please check out gsmagazine.org for back issues, uh, to subscribe yourself, to send in a $5 donation um, um, every month, um, whatever it is that you can do to support this important work. We really appreciate it. Thank you, friends. Thanks, y'all. Thank you for having me. Uproar is the brainchild of Samson Koba III. Thanks, Sam, for getting us launched on this last year. It also is our place for continuing to tell the stories of students conspiring for goodness from the heart of the city of Detroit. We hope that you'll support us at MotorCityWesley.org for as little as a dollar a month for individuals and $40 a month for churches who would like to be a part of our network of young adult faith communities around Metro Detroit. Just get in touch with us, MotorCityWesley.org. We're looking to conspire with you. Cheers.